Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I am really excited to have a five here to interview today because it is not easy to get a five, let alone a self-pres five. I just got the, uh, what's it, what is that sign? Is that a? That's the the devil horns. The The devil horns. There we go. I was like, it's not peace. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The devil horns, heavy metal sign. See that that's how sexual blind I am that I don't even know the devil horns, heavy metal sign, but I'm like, oh wait, that's a sign. I should know something about anything mainstream pop culture, pretty illiterate. So anyway, yes, we heard from Trevor. Trevor, thank you for being here. Trevor Walsh uh, works in public health in uh, British Columbia, Canada, and he is a concurrent disorders counselor, which I just learned meant that it's people with more than one mental health diagnosis, like maybe addiction and a mental health diagnosis or something like this. And he is also a private therapist and Enneagram coach. So if anybody would like to reach out to Trevor, he can be contacted at trevorwalsh.ca, and that will be in the show notes. So Trevor is a five with a four wing. He would describe himself as a 514 trifix, and uh, he wants to talk and play with the stacking today, but self-pres is probably dominant, and we're going to explore from there. Trevor had tested earlier in life as INTJ, although he now resonates more with the INFJ. And yeah, Trevor, thank you so much for being here. How is it to be on this podcast right now? Oh, so far, so good. Um, I, I think I have some weird combinations and a bit of a weird pathway, so it'll be curious. Yeah, I love the weirder the better, because that makes for very interesting conversation. The one thing I'm going to highlight, because I keep bringing in Myers-Briggs typology, is that whenever I hear that somebody used to test as an INTJ and is now testing as an INFJ, I often think that that's a sign of your growth path and that you probably are an INTJ, but now have developed the other side of feeling, which would also go along with the work that a 0.5 would do, which is pulling that heart center online. So for me, both of those just suggest to me that, for example, I test now as an ENFP, which was why actually mm-hmm. early on in the podcast, you heard me introducing myself as an ENFP. And then very careful listeners will notice that I flipped into an ENTP. And this is because I started doing much deeper coaching um, with somebody mm-hmm. who specializes in using Myers-Briggs for personal growth, who also knows the Enneagram and a lot of deep Jungian psychology. Antonia Dodge is who I'm coaching yeah. with. And I have been identified, you know, I agree with her now that she has explained it to me that I'm an ENTP mm-hmm. that okay. has done a lot of work with feeling because as a three that has shut off my heart center and yeah. as, you know, an ENTP that has introverted feeling as seven out of eight functions, it's deeply unconscious for me. Mm-hmm. So I can only access it with tools. But there's something that before I even knew that I was an ENTP that told me 
I got to figure this feeling part out. And so I have mm-hmm. a bunch of tools, which now can make me look like an ENFP, like when I'm taking tests yeah. and whatnot. So I would just suspect that your story might be similar. Does that resonate with you? I like the theory. It's definitely possible. I had a different theory, mm-hmm. which was just around gender socialization, mm. you know, because males are more socialized towards T and women are more socialized towards F. And I thought it was overcoming that gender socialization. Yeah. What I love about the Myers-Briggs model is that the biggest difference that's jumping out right away to me is extroverted feeling or what we call harmony. So if you are an INFJ, that is going to be your parent function. So it's your second function, like number two. And if you're an INTJ, it's your eighth function, meaning it's like deeply unconscious. So that's probably the one that I would look at is just to say, you know, was I wired to be really good with people and kind of sense their vibe and really be the person that created harmony and peace and ease like in the space? Or did I learn how to do that somewhere along the way? Because if it's your eighth function, we call it your demon or your daemon. Yeah. So are you feeling exposed right now? Uh, no, I'm I'm very amused because okay. that rings true. Which because one? Because I was kind of I was looking back on my career path, and when I decided I wanted to become a counselor in my early twenties, I had no skills. Okay, like yeah. none, like almost yeah. none. I could listen to people and I could think well. Yeah. So there's probably something to that. Yeah, absolutely. And you wanted to be a counselor. Why do you think you wanted to be a counselor? I hate to say it, but it was it was a calling. Mm-hmm. I, I had a, a couple experiences around that time of my life. Oh, and I sought counseling, which was for um, girl troubles. And the first counselor I got, she used some interventions that I really disliked. One of them was kind of really pushing me to emote. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. I was convinced it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But there was also something about the whole process that was really intriguing to me. And I thought I actually thought in some ways I could do a better job than her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then I took the next steps. Well, and I have a theory that the best therapists are either like super intuitive about like feelings and relationships, or it's something that is confusing for us, and we just decide that we're going to really break it down, and we're going to really learn, and we're going to really understand it. And I think that both can end up being incredibly gifted. You're either like naturally kind of a savant in it, or you maybe were a little disabled in it and you wanted to figure it out and you used all the skills that you had to actually pull that in as a superpower. I'm more the latter category. I was very confused by people for most of my life. And I I resonate with that second category a lot more. Um, you actually also said something kind of similar to what Bessel van der Kolk likes to say. Uh-huh. Um, he's a famous trauma therapist. Yeah. And he says, we, we, we teach what we don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, this whole entire process of typology for me is I'm basically gathering frameworks. And these frameworks have pegs on which I can hang my thoughts. I stole this mm-hmm. from my coach Antonia Dodge, and it really, really resonates with me. So this is why I, thought I, I came love up with that idea. Did you do that? Did you already? I thought think I came that? up with it. Okay. Yeah, I've I've always, you know, just my learning style. 
I have trouble memorizing facts, but if mm-hmm. you give me a theory, it you know, it gives me a place to hang everything. That's so interesting. Well, I'm actually good at memorizing facts. Like that's what medical school is basically. It's like here are like 1 million drugs that sound like a foreign language and you've never heard of them before, just memorize yeah. them, go, you know. So, yeah, I can memorize facts, but what I realized is that there's a different type of thinking, like really being able to be a web-based thinker and pull together like a very broad base of knowledge is so much more incredibly powerful than memorizing a set of facts for me. And I'm very envious of extroverted intuition. It mm. is unnatural, very unnatural for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Most people don't appreciate extroverted intuition. It's kind of annoying for people who don't have it. It's nice to hear you appreciate it. <laughs> well, I experience it most in in social settings, I think. And it's wonderful there because, you know, you can have these crazy free associative conversations and they're so much fun. Yeah, they are so much fun. I mean, this podcast literally is probably the most fun I have all week, which makes me sound like an incredibly nerdy person um, without much of a social life, which is true. But yeah, these are the kinds of things that I just love and vibe and get off on because we can just go anywhere with the conversation. And for me, not knowing much about you or where the conversation will go is part of the surprise element. Like I just am, you know, love every little bit that I hear. So long as we've got something in common, which is a typology framework and Mm -hmm. a longing to talk about it, it it seems to go well. And with the whole um, INTJ, just for listeners, so if you were an INTJ, it's introverted intuition that is actually your superpower. So this is why if we put somebody with extroverted intuition and introverted intuition together, a really intuitive pair. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of a cool um, pairing. The issue is that in INTJ, the secondary function is extroverted thinking, which is kind of, let's get things done and be practical about it. And that is the function that can get annoyed with extroverted intuition because it wastes a lot of energy, like just brainstorming and spewing ideas. You're like, we're not actually doing anything. And that can be annoying to somebody that hasn't worked through their neuroses around extroverted thinking. I work by myself almost all the time, so that's rarely a problem. Yeah, right? Thankfully. You can just set your own pace, your own schedule. I, I used to dissociate in meetings. Uh-huh. Because they're yeah. so annoying because nobody's but getting anything there's done. There's so many distractions and let's just get it done. I even had a criticism that it actually stung a little bit and it was behind my back. So it shocked me. But they would stay late in the meetings and just chat and I would always leave and the comment was, do we want to hang out or whatever? And one of my colleagues said, oh, Trevor's just going to get bored and leave. Mm. And it's stung because it's, it's accurate. Yeah. Well, so it's boring when people are sort of recognizing that they're not getting anything done. And they're like, what, what aspect of it is boring specifically? Like uh, when you're in a meeting, is it small talk or is it like it's I guess, just talking about a problem and not fixing it? Yeah, when there's a lack of structure and when it seems like people are dragging it on longer than necessary, like, let's just mm-hmm. get it done. You know, these things aren't, well, I don't find them fun. You know, right. let, let, let's be efficient and get to work and save this for fun time. Yeah. Yeah, I can do both, actually. It's interesting. Like, as a three, when I get into work mode, mm-hmm. like, I just want to get it done. But at the same time, if I'm 
getting distracted, entertained, or engaged by the way a conversation is going, I'll just be like, oh, I'll get that done later. And I enter like play zone. So yeah, I have some INTJ friends that I will annoy because they want to be more focused and I'm in a playful mind space. So So you do it for sport? Yeah, it's so fun. Like I just do it because it's fun. Yeah, That's terrible. (laughs) Well, you know, they think that getting things done is fun. And I think that brain play is fun. So, you know, I think that in every relationship, this is such an interesting thing. This, and I love this. In I have a belief that relationships should involve some amount of mutuality. Like I flex for you and you flex for me. Mm-hmm. I'll do something that you're going to enjoy and you're going to do something that I enjoy. And if there's like no overlap, if we just like, if it's too much, like if, if I can't give you what you want joyfully enough of the time, mm-hmm. then this just probably isn't a good pairing. Can't argue with that. Yeah. I'm in the habit of questioning everything that I think. So I'm going to have to work with that one later. But that, but yeah, I do hold a strong belief that for me, it feels, I was wondering if it's an attachment thing, because I just believe that I am going to have to flex for almost everybody around me. And I expect that people should be tolerant of me too. And not everybody wants to be tolerant of my bullshit, I've noticed. Sounds like the first part is three and the second part is attachment. Hmm. Say that again. The first part is the first three. Part sounded meaning, like three, like the. the I already flexing. forgot what the first part was. The, the, oh, the, the flexing, flexing sounds like the three. Yeah, got it. And the second part is that I want them to do it for me. Ah, you know what? That's so astute. So it's like that's my love language. My love language is that I will shape shift and change to be what you want to be. So I would appreciate it if you loved me in the same way and that sometimes you shape-shifted and changed to be what I want you to be. That fits. Wow. Mind blown. Okay, let's get back to your interview, Trevor. Now, I can see you're, you're like being my therapist here, like helping me work through that. So thank you. And I'm not even trying. <laughs> I know, right? See, but that is, hmm, there's something about the... INTJ and the INFJ. So I could see how this fits for both. There's all that introverted intuition around just recognizing patterns and just having a sense of something. Wow. That's my fifth opposing function. So people that just have these things float up and just say it in a statement, it feels like magic. Because for me, I need a lot of words to actually come up with anything. It's also frustrating. Like I have a nickname for intuitive introverted intuition, and I call it the function that never shows its work. Ah, And I sometimes joke about it, even in therapy, and I actually call it making it up as I go. It's not really making it up as I go, like it is drawing on stuff, but it takes a lot of work to figure out where I'm getting all the sources from, and frequently I can't remember all the sources or or any reasoning behind it necessarily. So does it just bubble up as something you just know? Is that what it's like? Well, it feels very normal and natural to me. It's just, oh, yeah, bing, 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 here we go. And and I offer wow. it up, and most of the time it goes well. Wow. And so do you need a lot of alone time in order for that function to work well? I've never put it that way, but I would say, yes, I need a lot of alone time, which which is also very five, because if I don't get enough, I... It, it kind of feels like there's too much, too much happening. And 
like that fear of overwhelm is it's really the defining feature for me that makes me feel I'm a five. Yeah, absolutely. And well, how would you describe that overwhelm? What does that overwhelm feel like? How do you know um, when you're getting overwhelmed? Uh, time gets distorted. Cause mm-hmm. I, I think in terms of like avarice, mm-hmm. like for me, time and energy are the, the scarcest resources. And it feels like I don't have enough time to do all the things that are expected of me. And I don't have the energy to complete it. And it's a really awful feeling. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I want to crawl into a hole. Mm. Yeah. And when it's really bad, I, I kind of, I guess, objectively analyze this after the fact. I have a lot of free time, but I don't think I have any free time. Mm. Yeah. It, it gets really, really twisted up and well distorted. Yeah. So how do you work with that? Uh, poor, uh, I was going to say poorly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're a five with a four wing. So you had some joke about that. Oh, and I forgot it already. They usually come up in the moment. <laughs> yeah. I think it was something like all the darkness and neurosis or what of both points or something. And, and, none, of, and none of the artistic ability that is and often associated. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That, um, I love fives and fours because of their darkness, though. I'm a three with a two wing and seven and one fixes. And these are all more positive, sunny, can do kind of types. Mm-hmm. And I am very, very attracted to the darkness, though. Um, I actually got really triggered because I'm writing a book chapter. And uh-huh. one of the editors that I spoke with told me that what I was writing was not inspiring enough joy and delight. <laughs> oh, if that was me, I'd be angry. I was angry, but I actually managed my anger in a very passive aggressive three slash nine kind of way. Yeah, it was interesting. Passive aggression is sometimes handy and sometimes fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, I'm a doctor, and so people are coming to me for relief of pain or suffering. They don't actually come in looking for joy or delight. Right. And so I much prefer, I have this saying, like, give me all your shit and we'll turn it into gold, you know, like kind of like a crucible, you know? And so I much prefer to like go into the darkness and like find the pearl inside Mm -hmm. of the turd, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's why I like fives and fours. There's something very real about showing up with your, and I, I mean, now I'm worried I'm offending you and or the fours and fives out there, mm-hmm. but you're not trying to, like, you're not, like, you're just so not worried about pleasing others with your cheery disposition. There's something so incredibly refreshing about that. I, I've got an interesting compliment over and over again. It's usually from people managing me. I, I've always taken it positively, but it's uh, you always have an interesting perspective to share. But that interesting word is, you know, it's it's pretty pretty vague. Yeah, well, that that's true because I think that one of the things that's true about fives is that they are not afraid to allow any and every thought in. And I think there are some people that have a belief that there are just certain thoughts that shouldn't be thunk or something like that. 
oh, that makes them worse. Right. You know, if, yeah. you, push, if you if you push a thought away, it, it, it fights back. I don't know why, but uh-huh. it does. Yeah. Yeah. My coach, Antonia, I'm working with says that mold only grows in the dark. So if we mm. shine some light on whatever that is, yeah. that then we can. And I think Mr. Rogers said um, anything that is mentionable is manageable. I have a brain that just hooks on to these little things that Ooh. I remember them. I like that one. Yeah. He was a good guy. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about your story. I want to hear how you'd like to tell it. You said it was interesting. It was a little non-traditional. Tell us a little more. We really only got up to you being 20 years old, having some girl troubles, going to a therapist, thinking that you could do a better job, and then really studying this a lot. Yeah, that sounds very tidy. It was much more difficult. Like I didn't actually get qualified to practice therapy until my mid-30s. So it took a long time to get there because I didn't actually have the skills and I didn't have the confidence. And definitely the idea of putting myself out was challenging. But another piece is most of the... um entry-level jobs where you're using counseling skills, they're horrible. Oh, they're terrible. Um, terrible jobs. Like working at a homeless shelter, um, I'd say working with addicts was almost as difficult in many ways, certainly to start. But it required me, like, or what I saw out there were things that required me to really extrovert and put myself out. And that's what not what I imagined when I said I want to be a therapist. I was going to sit in a cushy office and Everyone is going to come to me. Oh, they're also all going to be happy to see me, which turns out is not true. Um, (laughs) So there there were a lot of illusions that had to be broken down, and they were broken down pretty brutally because, you know, over the years, I've worked with a couple murderers, um, the odd sex offender, a lot of career criminals. One of the things I still work with really regularly today is borderline personality disorder, which freaks everybody out. And somehow I can kind of do it, though it sometimes freaks me out, too. So it it was a real rude awakening. And I was probably fairly traumatized and fairly dissociated for um, a good chunk of my career. Wow. Yeah, that's really intense. I mean... The burnout in healthcare workers is just something that I don't think we truly appreciate how intense it can be to be on the front lines trying to support some of the people with really challenging behaviors in society. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not really prepared for it. No, no, not remotely. Again, I, I walked in with some uncharacteristically rose-colored glasses because I'm not usually that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it yeah, wasn't rose-colored absolutely. glasses. It's just ignorance. And I, you know, I need yeah. to see more of the real world. So how did you heal from some of that trauma? Did you go to more therapy or what supported you to get through that? Lots and lots of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would say since my early 20s, I've been pretty lucky with friendships. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they were the adopt adopt an introvert form of friendships, but uh, those can be pretty good friendships, nevertheless. Hmm. Um, extroverts, you know. Yeah. 
I have all my friends are introverts. I know. I mean, it's really funny. I find extroverts to be annoying. So that's why when I get any kind of Mm. feedback that I'm annoying, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. (laughs) You know, just because it's, um, it's just a lot, you know, extroverts take a lot of the air out of the room. They can sometimes take a lot of energy. I mean, these days, most of my friends are withdrawn types. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm surrounded by fours, fives, and nines. Well, no, mostly fours and nines, okay. with a few exceptions here and there. And how did you collect that group of people? You know, I pretty much, and I think maybe this is also characteristic of withdrawn types, pretty much all my friends are from work or study. Okay. Like, I don't meet yeah. people doing other things. Yeah. I meet people. I just don't become friends with them. All of my friends are mm. from work or study as well. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, I have heard this saying that, you know, we're born into a family and then we sort of find our soul family as we're moving through mm. life. And that really resonates for me is that the people that I talk to the most, I've definitely found along the path. I can also agree with that for me. You know, my founder chosen family is, uh, there's, not really any overlap with my the family I was born into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you in touch with the family you were born into? Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. it's kind of arm's length mostly. My, my stepmom was abusive and she, you know, she was in there from when I was two or three-ish. Mm, okay. um, I have a decent relationship with my birth mother, but we, I think we both have an avoidant attachment style. So we, we don't have to talk very often. So sometimes it's mm-hmm. like every month or two. And mm-hmm. I talk to my other parents less often and for, well, much shorter periods of time because it's it's just not very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of choosing those relationships that are really nourishing to you. Exactly. Yeah. So I was also having the thought that a self-press five would probably be the perfect therapist for somebody that has an addiction or a borderline personality disorder, because I think of self-pressed fives as having excellent boundaries. And I would think that's really important with these kinds of clients. I I can push back on that one, actually. Um, Okay. I do not remember where I read it, but, um, or heard it from, but the description of fives was that fives come with walls, not boundaries because they're not actually that good with boundaries. If you get close and they're not ready, you're going to overwhelm them. Mm. And uh, that, that was me, you know, shopping for clothes for many years. Uh, you know, those salespeople, I, I mm. would actually not even want to go into the store. If there was someone who looked like they were going to approach me, it mm. is surprisingly frightening because they make me yeah. spend more money than I wanted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They might make me choose something I didn't like. Right. So yeah. I, I, before I learned how to develop, I guess, more fluid and more defined, refined boundaries, I just had a lot of like hard nose. Yeah. Like, nope, just looking. Nope, I don't want to do that. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm kind of like that with salespeople. <laughs> I think that um, it, it's interesting to me. I think I'm just thinking of how I use the word no. That's really interesting to me too. You're bringing what you're bringing up for me is the reality that 
when I do let somebody into my world, my boundaries actually aren't good, right? And so I have a lot of hard notes for the same reason. That's really interesting. I've gotten better at finding the words to, you know, set set more subtle boundaries without alienating everybody or yeah. upsetting them or angering them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the interesting things about threes and nines, I'm not going to go as far as to say sixes because I'm not thinking about it, but I think that threes and nines are kind of slippery. Like we'll sometimes you think we're saying yes, but we are not actually saying yes. So it's like, we keep it nice. And then what you're wanting may not really happen or we lie about it. Like threes will just lie and nines just evade is my observation. Yeah. Totally seen that. Uh Um, I I did my first Enneagram. No, my second Enneagram training was uh, with the narrative Enneagram. I, I did their program and the first two intensives were actually just before COVID. The timing was, I guess, wonderful for that. Mm-hmm. And I lost my train of thought. Hmm. That happens sometimes. It happens to me all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we they do most a lot of their training around panels and saw the nine panel. And there was kind of this oh shit moment. And I started tracing back with my relationship. And it's like did she actually agree to all those things or was I actually coercive or overly domineering or controlling or something like that? And she didn't really want to go along or be with these certain things in the first place. So that night there was a long, um, admittedly drunken conversation because that was the one night that the group of us, you know, left the training site. Yeah. And was your wife at the training? No. No, okay. she she only knows the Enneagram through me, and she's kind of interested, but you know, she's not, I guess, interested enough to take a dive into it. Yeah, but she identifies as a nine, and you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at times, I thought that she might be a six, but the six the six ish kind of stuff only shows up in fairly limited contexts, uh, usually around traveling. And certain things around, you know, locking doors and stuff like that, which I'm, I, I'd actually like more six vigilance. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah. I say I could benefit from a little bit more of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm working on that all the time too. It's my integration mm-hmm. point. So yeah, trying to, yeah, absolutely bring that vigilance in. Not just the, oh yes, of course we can Zoom, go. Maybe we should think about that first. Yeah. <laughs> So after that moment where you're like, I wonder if I, you know, coerced her, blah, blah, blah. Did you ask her these questions? And what did she say? Uh, she said, absolutely not. So that you did not coerce That was her. nice to know. Maybe she wasn't telling the full truth about that, but I'm, I'm uh-huh. going to accept it. Yeah. So you got to get let off the hook. Well, it wouldn't have been, I guess. There was no hook to be on. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I would have felt, <laughs> I would have felt bad about it. And I guess I was feeling kind of bad about what I was imagining. Mm, Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just resonating with it because I absolutely did do that in my first marriage to a nine. And that's why the marriage ended up not working out. But I also think that, you know, there's always two sides to everything. The nines can sometimes disappear on us. Mm -hmm. And that can, that's what I notice is that I amp up 
when my nine is disappearing, which is exactly the wrong strategy with a nine because they just move further away. But it's taken me a decade of Enneagram studies to kind of actually start integrating that awareness. I'm not sure my strategy is any better because I often use that as an excuse. Mm. Oh, you're not what present. I, I'm going to go and not be present somewhere else. Got it. So you will. Yeah, I was curious about that because, you know, I know all about the three nine relationship, which is typically, you know, the three moves in and the nine runs away. So mm-hmm. it kind of looks more like the what you would imagine with an assertive type and a withdrawn type. Mm-hmm. But when you have two withdrawn types, yeah, if you both get into bad places, you just both go to your own corners of the house and who emerges first? How, what does that look like? It varies all the time. And, you know, we're not always going away. We don't, that, I guess that's one plus. We don't fight very much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's more like, you know, periods of annoyance or frustration or disconnect. And, and we, you know, we go apart, we come together, we go apart, we come together. But, you know, you know, she can come home totally pissed off and fed up and, I'll make her a cup of tea and leave her alone and do my thing on the other sofa. And in an hour or two, she'll be fine. I'm actually the more kind of, I I don't want to use that word. I'm going to use it anyway. I'm the more neurotic one. Like I am more affected by things. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot more ups and downs. And usually she rides with them pretty well. As long as she doesn't try to sound like a therapist, it usually goes okay. Uh, Is she a therapist? Yeah, she's also a therapist. Oh, wow. Yeah. The she wasn't when I met her. She, she followed me. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was, she was interested. She didn't think she could do it. I encouraged her and she like followed me into my program about six months behind. From an external standpoint, she is definitely the better therapist because she has a thriving private practice and she makes a lot more money than me. So mm, she, yeah. well, she she's clearly got that was warm right. nine vibe probably. She that, does. Uh, yeah, that nine energy is very intoxicating. But when I'm upset, I don't like people to be too warm to me. Uh huh. I, I want people to be kind of maybe slightly warm, but more neutral. Yeah. Because and why it, is that? I don't know. It sounds patronizing. Okay. It's like, yeah. oh, poor you. Got it. And it, so it I, gets what's the last skin. thing that pissed you off? Like, what's the last thing that irritated you? Oh, I saw some more dishes in the cupboard that I don't remember buying. Mm. That that's the thing we fight over most is I guess space. Because, yeah. you know, she's got that auxiliary SE. Yeah. And not only does she can she handle a lot of sensory data, but she loves stuff. And yeah. also she knows what to do with all that stuff and where to find it, even if there's way too much of it. And it just completely overwhelms me. And I like space. Like if if I lived alone, there would be a lot less. There'd be a lot more empty space in my my abode. Yeah, I think of fives as minimalists. I would call my style minimalist comfort. So it's uh-huh. it's a step up from Spartan. Right. Yeah. It's like exactly what you like, and you don't need more than that, and it's just perfect, just for you. Yeah, because things you you got to store them, you got to buy them, you got to take care of them. Sometimes you got to repair them and replace them. Like, I just want the things that I want and nothing else. Yeah, I must be working on my inner five because I feel the same way. I mm-hmm. um, 
Yeah. I definitely like being comfortable in my home. Like there are certain features that I really want my home to have, but stuff is definitely not one of them. Yeah. Like, like I don't, I hate, I don't like collecting anything. Like people buy me things and I just want to ask people like, please don't buy me anything. Like I don't want any things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I make the joke that, you know, having had four children and just having a mother and a sister that just love buying things for people. Like there is so much stuff in my house that I never touch. I never use. And it's really hard on my mom because she loves her stuff. Like it's just she and my dad and they still bought this like 2,800 square foot house. And she has so much stuff that Mm -hmm. is exquisitely organized because she's a one. So like her label maker is her very favorite thing. And she knows exactly where all of her stuff is. And she does get rid of things, but I just can't imagine wanting to spend so much time organizing stuff. That sounds terrible to me. Me too. But I, I felt myself getting a little bit excited about the process of things being that organized. Right. That, that no, sounds very attractive to me. Yeah. I like it too, but my own ability or my own willingness, I would need somebody else to organize it for me. Yeah. So your self presiness is really around like you're identifying with this as being dominant because your living quarters and sort of the order, like tell us a little bit more, like why self pres dominant, what things are important to you? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of Russ's teachings where he, uh, you know, talks about the dominant type as being, you know, kind of, kind of a little bit off, like a little bit distorted, a little bit messed up. And mm-hmm. for me, I see the self-pres instinct as being um, very risk averse with a lot of stuff, especially mm-hmm. around work and career. Mm-hmm. Like the job I'm in now, you know, I've been there years too long, like for me, for my, you know, for my soul or whatever. Mm-hmm. I should have been gone a long time ago, but I'm scared of, you know, financial insecurity. You know, mm-hmm. what if I don't find the job? What if it doesn't work out? What right. if I hate it more than this? Um, so my steps have been very cautious. And I've stuck with jobs I disliked and were maybe even not good for me for too long. Like I spent mm-hmm. prior to this, the job with the health authority. I spent seven years working in a methadone clinic. It was a complete nightmare um, mm-hmm. in so many ways. It wasn't all that, but it was pretty rough. And it was nothing close to any kind of counseling I actually imagined myself doing. Okay. So self-pres dominant. Tell us, now on some tests, you have come up as sexual middle and on some social middle. How do you yeah. frame your narrative and what do you think is true for you? I still lean on the sexual being second because I, I I tend to kind of I get charged up by certain things like I I don't think so much I need to do this to belong or to fit in or I'd like to have a a stable circle around me. Um, we don't have kids. I've never wanted kids. So, and I also have noticed some certain wounds around uh, social stuff that show up in interesting ways. While the sexual instinct, I would say, is uncomfortable because I had very little confidence in myself, you know, well into my 20s. That's still what was running the show. Even my social life, you know, I forced myself to get into more social events because I saw that I was going to have no life. And I definitely wasn't going to have a girlfriend or a partner. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to have a sex life. And that's 
what I was going after when I was becoming more social. <laughs> it was very successful. I was more successful at making friends in the end. So, you know, do what you will with that. But I still I still run on charge. And only the self-pres keeps me from following that more often. Mm, that's so interesting. It, it's like the the sexual instinct comes up when this when things get a little too flat or uninteresting. Okay. Yeah. So what how does your sexual instinct express itself? Like what will you do that makes things less flat and more interesting? A lot of it is learning and my interests are probably you know, my interests are on the narrow side, I think, of course. But I get really excited about them to the point where my my partner said at one point, I wonder if you might be a little bit on the spectrum. Uh-huh. I what what are your interests? Like is it the Enneagram? And what are uh, besides the Enneagram? The Enneagram is really big. A fairly narrow subset of music is really big. And to a lesser extent, um, various counseling stuff in general, political theory, um, right-wing movements. Um, mm-hmm. Not because I want to join them, just getting that out of the way. But, you know, it's it's a little different. Yeah. When I was hearing you come up with the list, mm-hmm. some of these things that you're talking about that bring you charge, I can see the social flavor to it because it's mm-hmm. a lot about like social systems, like specifically when you're talking about, you know, po- certain political groups or yeah. certain theories, like they have, like they excite you, but because of the social implications of these groups is what I'm kind of getting a sense of. It's a, yeah, it's a dark kind of excitement. Uh-huh. Yeah. And even the type of work that you chose is a very social instinctual type of work to support people, help people. There's a lot of social instinct there. And at the time, I was very clear. Like, I thought I was a one when I was younger. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something good for the world. And I thought, this is a place I could do good and actually maybe enjoy myself. Yeah. Because most of the things... And why do you want to do good for the world? I don't know because it beats the alternative. Like that's a <laughs> that's a really limited answer. You know, I'm plenty selfish, but you know, I don't want to harm others. Yeah. And I'd I rather kind of feel like the people who want to do good for the world though, that I feel like that's the high side of the social instinct. It is. And not the current side I work at, but the last side I worked at. It was in the worst part of Vancouver. It's in a really horrible area. Like yeah. people lining the streets with sleeping bags and shopping carts and everything so i worked there for a long time in this very pro-social let's help these people environment and i can only go so far with it Mm -hmm. um i actually started losing interest in it which i'm not particularly proud of but it's like i'm not that interested in helping i don't like this work anymore you know, I, yeah. I want I want to meet with some. I want to work with some more psychologically minded people. I I want a little more meat in the counseling. I don't want to, you know, do crisis work and have yet another conversation about um, about quitting crack cocaine. Right. Yeah. Well, that so, makes sense to me. Yeah. Because so I, I think there's some hopelessness. Oh, totally. Yeah. If yeah, I mean, like, I think that when you're working with somebody who is in the situation that they're in, which is like so desperate, you know, they're houseless, they're addicted to drugs, you know, there's such a huge trauma history. 
I'm assuming I know that Canada has better social services and behavioral health, I think, than the United States, but it's still, I'm imagining, not amazing. I don't know. What do you think about the access to social services and behavioral health for people who are addicts and homeless in Canada? Uh, I'm sure it's better, but I, you know, I don't, I'm not on the ground in the States to know what it's like. Um, from what I've heard, there is more opportunity, but still really limited. And some of how we help, I question sometimes. Um, this is probably not fair, but you know, when I worked downtown, I worked with a lot of nurses. Like nurses are true helpers. You know, there's a lot of that too stereotype in there. And I often found it as enabling. Yeah. Sometimes it was unrealistic. This person is in distress. Come help them. And I'd be called into the, you know, the nursing officer, the doctor's office. And it's like, they're not even interested in talking to me. And right. like, you know, I say something like, well, when you're ready, come to me. But inside, like, don't waste my time. Right. You know, if you yeah. want help, come. If you don't, don't. Right. But I don't think that's a particularly pro-social attitude. But I could still see social second as a possibility. I mean, I kind of feel the same way. The reason that I'm making the career shift I'm making right now is because as a physician, I have so many people coming in wanting ADHD medication, anti-anxiety medication, antidepressants, and, mm -hmm. you know, even like reflux medications, but they're, you know, morbidly obese and have terrible eating habits. And so like people just want medication yeah. so that they can continue to do the self-destructive habits that have mm -hmm. them feeling poorly. And I mean, I get it. You know, I probably shouldn't drink alcohol at all anymore. When I have two glasses of wine, I feel hungover for two days. So, Ew. I mean, it's like a sign that my body doesn't want this. And yet sometimes I'll still have a couple glasses of wine. So, I mean, on one level, I understand. We have legal alternatives up here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, they're, they're becoming increasingly legal in the United States, actually. But yeah, um, I know. It's just really interesting to see that people often are not interested in other strategies for managing suffering. They just want to continue to do the well, they, thing that they want to be comfortable without doing the hard work of change because it is hard work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, honestly, I teach classes, I teach, you know, a variety of unwinding anxiety, craving to yeah. quit, eat right now, things like this. And I think I have a hundred people signed up to take them from my clinical practice mm -hmm. and maybe eight or nine come and that's a good week. So it's the similar thing where I just feel like I have so much more that I can offer you than this prescription, but it's that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I totally get that. And I still feel social middle. Even yeah. though, you know, I mean, for, and I mean, I even have a two wing, you know, I have a lot of that. I love helping people, yeah. but I agree when they um, really kind of shut you down and they come in with a very, very narrow agenda of this is what I want. And I want to just get out of here and go back to work and the, all the other things that I'm doing. I'm noticing that I'm just not that interested in that. It feels boring now. Mm. So there is another reason I think social might be lost. And why is that? I did some psychedelic experimentation, um, mostly before COVID. I've had one uh, experience since then. And mm -hmm. I've always done it in a ceremonial setting because, well, because it feels safer. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think those are wise things to do alone. And I think the structure and the container helps. 
but almost every one of these ceremonies, it's always been psilocybin. Mm-hmm. You know, the drug experience is one thing. It's kind of interesting and kind of, I guess, mostly enjoyable. But mm-hmm. then there's, then you start coming out of it. Every time I come out of it, there is some sense of feeling socially unsafe. Mm. The last one, which was over a year ago, it was really powerful. It was not, it was like, I don't belong. I don't fit in. And there's kind of an interesting culture around psychedelics. Um, but there are people, you know, I, I did my ancestral healing and, and they're, they're doing these amazing things. I think someone might have learned Sanskrit while they were high, but I made that <laughs> up. But, but, you know, right. it's, it, it's ridiculous. And I'm just looking around like, you guys are full of shit. I don't trust any of you. And I'm feeling unsafe here because of what's come up. And I'm not saying a fucking word. Yeah. So to me, I think, I think there's a wound there. And when things go wrong in friendships, I'm usually confused and puzzled. Hmm. What's an example of something going wrong? I was in a book club for years with a bunch of guys. Like my, the only thing I've come close to a, as a men's group. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought it was going pretty well. It had a real kind of one six energy in the group, like very earnest people mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing. I didn't quite fit in with that super well. And I didn't participate in a few things as much as others did because they had outings and stuff sometimes. You know, after several years, I wasn't feeling the group anymore. And I just, you know, dropped an email to everyone and said, I'm going to take a break, which actually mm-hmm. meant I was probably leaving forever. But yep. nobody said a thing. Yeah. Like, no, we'll miss you. Sorry to see you go. Come back anytime. Nothing. Dead silence. And mm. I just thought, fuck, what happened there? Hmm. Yeah. So you were recognizing that you weren't feeling connected to the group. Mm-hmm. And then when you recognize they weren't feeling connected to you either, there was really a profound sense of disappointment. I'd say hurt and disappointment, but it's interesting the way you framed it, the mutuality of it, because it clear it was mutual. Yeah. Well, what I feel like you're touching on is just this deep human need to matter and have some sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like in social groups, um, if your presence isn't mourned in some way, or at least even acknowledged as having I, I been just there, wanted something polite, like you didn't even have to mean yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just taking that in. Because I'm realizing like, as I'm hearing you speak that there are so many different codes like social codes that we're all living by you Mm -hmm. know what i mean that like we're running around with these expectations that this is what i would like you to do in regards to me Mm -hmm. and i think that people are often pretty self-absorbed and clueless about what other people are wanting or needing yeah this is very much a, a voluntary group a voluntary participation group and yet the way i behaved still push me to the margins, I would argue. Yeah. And by the way that you behaved, what do you mean by that? Mostly not participating as much in the outings. 
uh, the social things. Yeah. And I also seem to be a little out of step with my book selection. Usually I, I couldn't quite figure that out. Like they didn't like what you chose to read. More often than not. Yeah. Yeah. God, you're making me wonder if I'm a five. No, I know I'm not a five, but <laughs> but I mean, I, there's a ladies book group in the area mm-hmm. that for some reason, this is the attachment thing. I am still on the text stream. Yeah. But I never participate, almost never. I mean, the only time I participate is if there's something like somebody ended up in the hospital with COVID, you know, mm-hmm. well, then I'll respond like, oh, well, I yeah. hope you're feeling better. You know, like right. something serious. Yeah. But there's... um I actually haven't gone to the book group in years, and yet I'm on the tech group text stream. I'm so yeah. curious. I like why don't I take myself off? There's something about just still knowing that I could go if I decided I wanted to go. That is reassuring for me. I can't relate to that. Yeah, right. So that's I think that one of those attachment type things. But I actually feel like if I just unsubscribed from the group and dropped off and or said I was taking a break. I'm just so curious. I'm like, would they notice or would they say anything? And I think that I'm actually carrying, you know, I'm heart-centered, so shame is my best friend. Mm -hmm. I have some shame that I'm not participating or infusing anything into the group. So I think that I would probably have the thought that, you know, I deserve whatever not mattering that they might parse out my mm-hmm. way because I haven't really put anything into the system. And it's funny, I, as I hear that, I can apply the reasoning to my own situation, but I never, it never occurred to me and I didn't identify it that way. Yeah. It, it yeah. was, you know, in, in my head, it was rejection. Yeah. Well, that just completely makes sense based yeah. on the object relation that we're each operating from. Yeah. Yeah. Like with attachment and as being a three, I imagine that I have to do something to actually earn your caring if I'm there or not. Hmm. So if I don't do anything, I just assume I could disappear and it wouldn't matter to anyone. Yeah. And weirdly, I, I go more in the, the being direction. Um, we just have to get something out of each other's company. And yes, there needs to be some reciprocity, but that's about it. Yeah. But I don't have like very, I guess you'd say functional friendships. The friendships are mm-hmm. almost purely for pleasure. And what does that mean? For like, so a functional friendship would be. Well, you might like be building where, something together, like making something happen productive yeah. in the world. But, you know, we're hanging out, we're eating, we're drinking, we're listening to music, we're seeing movies, we're going on hikes. It's just being together mostly. And you're saying you do have those or you don't have those? That's all I have. Like, yeah, there, there's usually like, there's nothing produced from the friendships, like concretely. Yeah. And it sounds like there's some of the, there's more happening in your friendships in a certain way. For sure. Yeah. As I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about how I identify as a self-pres three because Almost everything I do in some way is related to work, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily work I get paid for, but actually contributing into a space like creating something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like even this, I mean, this is producing content into the world that people who are curious about a self-pres five and 
I can't imagine anybody's still curious about me. I've talked so much about my stuff at this point, but I mean, you know, just if they want to just kind of see like how the dynamic is going, I think that it's a real gift to showcase what does our inner world look like. Mm-hmm. At least it's a gift to me because I think yeah. I'm so fascinated about people's inner worlds. Yeah. And you know what? You're bringing something up for me because accessing the play circuit is actually an area that I am noticing that I need other people in order to even access. So when you say relationships are for pleasure, I notice that if I'm alone, yeah, that I'll just work. Like I don't actually mm-hmm. know how to experience pleasure or play very well without calling someone or having a conversation or doing something. So that's a little bit of an edge I've been exploring. That's interesting. I wouldn't say I'm particularly skilled at playing, but I'm playful. Like most of my playing is in terms of like conversations and ideas and words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm I think I'm fairly quick witted, and yeah. I enjoy that the back and forth. It's it's a lot of fun. It is fun. Yeah, this is really fun for me. I'm curious how you're experiencing it. And you doesn't have enjoy- to be fun for you. No, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm mostly enjoying it. And there's a little part of me. Are we addressing the issue central to the show? Are we are we focused uh-huh. enough? Okay. What is so the issue central to the show? What would you say that is? You've been well, have you listened to a lot of it? I've listened to all of them. Wow. I think you're the first no, person I've I interviewed skipped, that's I listened skipped to one. Oh wow. For that like intentionally or you just did? Okay. You skipped one. Maybe I'll tell you later. Okay, you can tell me later. <laughs> okay, I'm just like, I'm like, my brain's just doing all of its mental gymnastics here. Okay, so you've listened to all of them. Yeah, what would you say the central objective to the show is? Because, you know, as an attachment type, on one hand, I think I know my agenda. And on the other hand, it feels like my agenda is emerging. I feel the second part, definitely. I'm sure the first part is still absolutely in play. but I- you know, main focus, I guess, is Enneagram and instincts. So yeah, we are absolutely. talking about the instincts, but we've, you know, we've done some wandering. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I think this is my extroverted intuition that is using wandering as a tool for getting a sense of what I think your instinctual stack is. Yeah, I wouldn't put that past you. <laughs> <laughs> No, like literally, like that, it yeah. actually seems like I'm doing nothing, but my brain is actually pinging all over the place with everything you say. Mm-hmm. So where are you leaning now? I'm just thinking. Because okay. you know what? A self-press five, I mean, I just want to name, like you guys aren't the easiest humans to read. And I also think I'm probably kind of a weird one because, you know, we're supposed to be like night watchmen and stuff like that. I know it's a stereotype, but I've learned how to communicate really well. And What's a night watchman? Like, I don't, I didn't get the analogy. What do you mean by that? Um, that's someone who works alone in a building to keep it safe after it's closed for the evening. Mm. And they're all by yeah. themselves. <laughs> my fives aren't like that, though. Like, I have one, one of my friends who's a five is, uh, I'll name his name, Dr. Judson Brewer. At um, He runs the Center for Mindfulness up at Brown. Yeah. And I mean, he's working with people all day, every day, 
My best friend, Apple, is a five. She's a functional dermatologist. She actually has four kids. It's um, She's a Ooh, weird five. She's yeah. a weird five. She keeps on uh, not being clear if she's a five or a nine. Um, that's why that last interview that I did with Darren, where we were typing him, I feel pretty strongly he's a nine, though. Um, but nines can come in so many different flavors. Yeah. You know, if and a five, nine. Can I open ahead. up a thing here? Please. I found yeah. that episode so triggering. Tell me why. It stirred up so much doubt as to my type and confusion as like, maybe I'm a nine, maybe I'm a nine. It it kind of settled, but it lasted quite a long time. Uh-huh. Both my birth parents are nines. Uh-huh. You know, it was actually the easiest way to flow growing up, just kind of going along yeah. with stuff when I could. Yeah. That's so interesting. Did you agree that he was a nine? Probably. Or do you think he could be a five? I, yeah. I think I think he's probably ninety. He had enough, and well, I'm biased, but I think anyone who's talking about really wanting a family can't be a five, which is probably totally wrong. But well, and then I have another you know, friend it's, who's it's a self-pressed five. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that I know two other self-pressed fives, and they, well, and you know, Doctor Brewer doesn't have children. My other two self-pressed five friends do not have children. This is one of the things about Apple that. I'm not, I can't really put my finger on because it's hard for me to imagine that a five would want four kids. It is for me. I've always thought that if, if we had a child, one, like one child, I would would need another job where I didn't work with people. Yeah. It just feels too much. There's no escape from, you know, external demand. Yeah, there's not. And I think that even having kids can be hard for nines. I think the difference is that my friend Apple is social dominant. Mm-hmm. So that's the only way that I can kind of pull it together is that yeah. she seems, and, and she also is a very, she's done a lot of work and is a very healthy five from what I can see. Yeah. And so, but I mean, God, the, the she fantasizes about being alone, which I think almost every mother of four does. But I think it's even more intense for her because, you know, she will have issues with romantic partners because she like doesn't like she needs more alone time. Like when you have four kids, like when would you even date? Whereas for me, I am an extrovert and she's also an introvert, you know, and I it's just one of those things where I kind of will fuel off of being with other people. So dating can be fun. Whereas Mm -hmm. for her, it's like another energy drain. And then if she, so she doesn't want to date, but then when she starts dating somebody for a while, they end up wanting more of her energy than she wants to give. So that can right. be complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So, and she's, she's kind of identifying these days as um, social self-pressed sexual blind mm-hmm. for that very reason that the one-to-one partnership, you know, can be kind of draining and it's kind of the thing that gets put down last and you know, deprioritized. Yeah. yeah. And when I'm under stress, social is the first thing to go. You know, I stop okay. calling people. I stop reaching. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't reach out that much to begin with, but you know, yeah. even less. Yeah. And I think that nines definitely do that, except if they're extroverted and social. And then they probably get busy. I don't know what they would I don't know. The nines that I know yeah, don't put a lot of effort into social stuff that much. And and that's another thing where I thought that 
the sexual was stronger than the social because of of how I connect with people. Uh-huh. Like my partner, most of the friends in her life have been around for a really long time. And I kind of cycle through mine, partly because of lack of maintenance. But I'll go to a class or I'll go to a, a work thing and I'll meet somebody and it's like, it's like I've been completely charged up by mm-hmm. not always the conversation. Sometimes it's, you know, something mysterious, but yeah, you know, I get filled up by it and it's an uncommon experience, but it is a regular enough experience. Yeah. No, I vibe with that too. I think that sometimes one of the things that I think about the sexual instinct as well is that there's this real sense of like attract or repel. We've been talking about that a little bit. Do you have the experience of, you know, attracting people that are really drawn to your flavor, whatever that, how they pick that up? I'm going to say, I think so. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I was, I, can't, I mean, I picked I, you up off of Facebook. Yeah. And that totally freaked the hell out, out of me. <laughs> did it really? Um, I'm exaggerating slightly, but, but you did that off of a single comment on a single thread. I'm like, eh, I'm not sure about this person. She might be sketchy. <laughs> well, now what do you think? <laughs> You're, you've confirmed that I'm sketchy. <laughs> I, I'm, yes, I'm convinced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's totally my extroverted intuition, like scanning the scene. Yeah. And your comment like just really intrigued me. I didn't I, I didn't think of I didn't think much of it. Yeah, right. Well, and do you remember the comment at all? It was about these different tests for instinctual drives, right? Yeah, it was uh it was a test for Mario Sakura's model mm-hmm. of the was it transmitting, navigating, and preserving? Mm-hmm. I remember the experience of doing the test, and it's like, I don't think I'm going to come out how I usually come out. I'm not mm-hmm. comfortable with this because mm-hmm. it's going to make me think differently about myself. And then in the end, I came out exactly how I expected. But uh, it it had a very different flavor to it. I I like his model, and he has really opened my mind up in a different way. Not so much that I'm drawn to his model in particular, but the idea that we can have many models that are effective. And tell me what you like about his model. He gave a very, in one of his podcasts, he gave a very good explanation as to why he doesn't like to use the word sexual. Mm -hmm. I thought his argument was really compelling. And what is it? Can you share with us? Well, part of it is setting because he's in corporate settings. That's the boring part. But the Mm -hmm. other part is the sexual instinct is about much more than sex because, you know, we're humans are complicated creatures and, you know, our our instincts manifest in much more complex ways. And part of me feels no need to decide which model is the best one. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying as a statistician who said it, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I love it. I love that expression. I like because it too. we're we're playing with constructs. They're not real things, mm-hmm. but sometimes they're very useful. They're very fascinating. They're very interesting, and they're helpful. But you know, are we ever going to pin this down? 
Yeah, well, and what I think that I'm longing for is some more clarity and accuracy, because I think that some of the different tests and some of the different models are actually measuring different things. And so that's the part that activates my one fix. And I Mm -hmm. would say that that is what has motivated me to do this podcast, is that I think that everybody who's doing work on the instincts is doing excellent work. I just don't think they're all talking about the same thing. Do you know the parable of the blind man and the elephant? Yes, I do. That's what I think we're all doing. Yeah, we're all feeling a different piece of it and saying this is this and this is that. And I thank you for sharing that. I 100% agree with you. Because, you know, I I really like the narrative training program. It had so many great pieces to it. It was a great foundation. I think panels are really useful. But... I found their instinct model a little bit weak. Mm-hmm. As soon as I heard Russ Hudson and the zones, oh, and they still use that phrase one-to-one, mm-hmm. um, which I think confuses so many people. Mm-hmm. I think what Russ said, I think there was a survey about people and most people prefer one-to-one connections as opposed to groups. So it's not a very useful descriptor. Yeah. You don't think one-to-one is a useful descriptor? No. Yeah, I don't either. I hate that, actually. I don't enjoy it at all. Transmitting lands with me better than, I mean, one-to-one. But I still like sexual. And let me tell you why. I think even even Beatrice Chestnut's starting to use that word. And I think she didn't start there. But I, I haven't gone back to my books recently for that. Yeah. I mean, I like sexual because I think of, I love how these instincts have evolved. And I love thinking about how the sexual instinct evolved because we want to exchange information and come up with something new. It's this, that can happen through social, but I like new creation. Like if you take, you know, an egg and a sperm and combine them, you have a completely like new human. Like that to me is sexual. And so mm-hmm. when you're thinking of that energy, so for me, sexual energy has a very distinct feel inside my body. Like mm-hmm. I can tell, like this conversation is absolutely sexual for me because I'm charged and mm-hmm. I'm curious and I'm tracking. And even though sometimes I might seem like I'm flitting around and whatever, there is absolutely a method to my madness. Like every question is coming from a space Mm -hmm. that may or may not actually give me the information I'm looking for, Mm -hmm. but then it actually kind of redirects like where the questions would go. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I also like Russ's description of, his description of how the instincts developed, you know, yeah. Life on the planet started with single celled organisms and all they needed to do was survive. And then as things got more complex, then, you know, sexual reproduction, sexual instinct comes online and then taking care of children, mammals and such, then the social instinct comes online. I love the model. It's so elegant and it's so simple. I totally agree with you. It just resonates as deep truth. Like for me, like, of course it would work that way. And the other thing that why I would say this is sexual is um, there's something invasive about the sexual instinct, like it's penetrating and it's going in. And so like on these interviews, 
one of the things that I'm also doing is just like, especially with a self-press five is like, where can I go? Like, where will you let me in? Like, where can I creep around? And I will absolutely use my creativity and my three-ishness to, you know, just chameleon into wherever it is. And I think what's probably interesting is that depending on who I'm interviewing, my energetic vibe is different. I totally concur with that. Having listened to every episode except one. (laughs) Yeah. And I actually love all the energies, to be perfectly honest. But it's just so interesting to watch how I have to be really present to even realize I'm doing it. Like there was that one with the eight that we did two episodes and it was so much competitive conversation and back and forth and back and forth. But I could tell that. It was very high energy and it was a little chaotic. Totally. But she kind of liked it that way. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'll go play with you there. Yeah. Um, What I'm realizing is that, well, and I don't know, like there are certain listeners who prefer me to stay in certain energetic zones as opposed to others. Yeah, I was kind of struck by the fellow turning the interview around. That was, that was like, I would never even think of doing that. Right? Yeah. I know. And that was fascinating to me. I don't think I liked it, but it was very interesting to just witness. What didn't you like about it? Uh, I don't know. It, and partly might be my counseling style, which is, you know, fairly non-invasive because, you know, I work with sexual abuse a lot. You can't invade with that. Like, uh-huh. I'd be very gentle, cautious, um, permission to not go into certain places. I never push. I nudge. Uh-huh. So I'm really cautious about that. And I can't imagine just bluntly, I don't know, role reversing. Well, okay. Even though one some thing, of my clients try to do it, mind you. But Well, well, so this is one thing that I don't know if I was transparent about. Mm-hmm. That wasn't going to be an interview. It was just a, hey, you said something cool in this group we were in. Can we talk about it offline? Yeah. And it was recording and... I was starting to ask him some questions and then he just, I could tell that it like my vibe was that he needed me to go first before he would warm up. But then he just kept asking me stuff. So oftentimes I will reveal at the level that I'm hoping the other person is also willing to play at. I know that game. Yep. Uh huh. But it was fascinating to watch because it was so alien from like how I function in the world. I think the two and the three are the, you know, the types I resonate with least energetically. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, if I did a test, those would be probably among the lowest scores, maybe seven as well. Yeah. So you're like my opposite. Perhaps. <laughs> with my three wing two with, uh, yeah, the seven fix. Yeah. And then there's that one energy, which, you know, Add a little self righteousness on it, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, well, and it, I can it be is righteous too. Oh, of course you can. No fives. I mean, well, this is one of the things I love about fives is that I can really say anything. Mm-hmm. Like I can say anything, and I can push back on anything. And in fact, like I can mental spar with my fives. Like that's so fun for me. Yeah, and all all we have to do on our end is like, eh, I'm not talking about that. We're mm-hmm. not going there. Like. If it, if there's enough rapport, it's real easy to set those boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I like to think that I'm pretty good at hearing a no. 
but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I won't just like explore like, yeah, where can we go here? You know, is there a side entrance that we could try? Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> course. Like I always hear no as not right now in this way, how you want it. It's not there are so many ways. No. There are so many ways to misinterpret that that are entertaining. <laughs> and I'm just I'm not going there. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean it absolutely uh, the the thing about the seven fix that I strongly identify with is that there is a little bit of shameless positive self-regard and that's also true with extroverted intuition. It's just like, mm-hmm. what? Huh? Me? You can't just see me for the beautiful intention, even though I just walked across a boundary. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. I really like sevens, but historically they flaked out on me quite a lot. So, yeah. What does flaking out look like? Uh, essentially not showing up. Something more interesting mm-hmm. came up. Ah, yeah. yeah. Or uh, with counts and clients, they don't often stay long. Ah. Yeah. I don't type. I don't type all my clients, but you know, there's a part of me that's always trying to do this thing and usually I don't share it with them but I always enjoy sevens and they usually don't stay very long even if it would be in their best interest to do so yeah and my experience of sevens is that they just really bounce away from the hard stuff a lot of times yeah Yeah, you might think you're doing work but like I think they spiritually bypass more than other types I would say yeah and I think there's a fair bit to back that up. I had a seven friend a few years back. It was that kind of really charged connection. We got on with like a house on fire immediately. And we had all these plans to like, oh, we're going to we're gonna do psychedelics together in this format. Like he, he was more forward about it than me. Then COVID hit, then he moved. And then we were exchanging messages back and forth. And I was super stressed during COVID because, you know, I was stressed at all the changes we were having to adapt to. And all my clients were like crashing and burning mentally and emotionally. So it's just this heavy weight. I shared that in one of our exchanges and that was the last I heard. Yeah. It was actually, you know, I, I was kind of hurt, but it's like, you know, this is kind of diagnostic as we sometimes say yeah i get annoyed if i'm talking to a seven or somebody with a lot of seven energy and they want to reframe whatever it is that i'm angry disgusted afraid or sad about like if they just want to reframe that into like a silver lining that can feel like disrespectful almost of Mm -hmm. the experience i'm having i've experienced that for a long time gratefully yeah. Wow. Well, I'm just loving this interview. I just feel like with fives, there's like so much depth to uncover here. It was really fun for me. Like if I'm going to guess, like, I, I like, honestly, Trevor, you know, I, I definitely think you're a five. I definitely think you're an INTJ that now has brought the feeling part online and, you know, the sensitivity and whatnot. It just feels so beautiful to me the way that you've integrated that and really owned it and kind of lead with it and that's been the hardest thing in the world yeah is it yeah because well part of it's like again the gender socialization guys aren't Mm -hmm. supposed to be too sensitive and i tried i swear for a good 40 years before i kind of like i guess i'm stuck with this yeah but not being sensitive when you actually are is sometimes bypassing, but I'd say in my case, it was mostly a fair bit of disconnect and dissociation. 
Well, the same exact story for me. I'm exquisitely mm. sensitive. The secret when of I, many threes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if I'm having a bad day, I think about what I want to get done and I go do something and I immediately feel better because whatever it is I'm feeling bad about, I tend to not have any control over. And there's like a lot of shame and grief and yuckiness around it or fear related to my self-preservation instinct. And so I just go like do something that I can feel like I have competency with. And that's incredibly stabilizing. I I tuned out for a second there Uh because I started thinking about myself, which yeah, uh, vibes are very self-referencing apparently. And I was just kind of struck by the difference in how we would cope with that bad day. Yeah. What would you do? I would either be playing a video game or reading up on neo-Nazis. Yeah. Or playing some really aggressive music. Ah, yeah. I think that that's a way that fives connect with their eight, you know, like is aggressive music. I've been noticing that as a theme. Yeah. In my, in my teens, it was all metal. Now it's sort of a mix of metal and progressive and psychedelia, but it's very, I have like one friend who shares my musical tastes in any depth. Yeah. I've gone to concerts by myself. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that many of the fives I know do like marijuana because I think it dampens the sensitivity of the nervous system a little bit. What do you think? Yep. Yeah. Like I said, it's legal here. So I've practiced a little bit, um, only edibles because I think smoking is gross, but Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed it one because I have this friend who's a therapist. He's a he's probably a four. He's one of the people mm-hmm. I practiced my typing interviews on when I was doing the narrative program. Mm-hmm. He would always ask me about my family, and I always get kind of snippy because I didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. You know, there's never anything new to say. And then one day I'm altered, and yeah. he asked me the same question, and I found I was able to be quite revealing and open about the dynamics and the experience of my family system. Yeah. Cause it didn't, it didn't sting as much. Absolutely. And it was, it actually makes, I actually took a, you know, just a one day course on cannabis kind of mm-hmm. a, a little survey course on all the dimensions of it, um, abuse, but also potential benefits. And the professor was speculating on the idea that cannabis could be used sort of like MDA and psilocybin is being studied, you know, therapeutically. And I think there might be something to that. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'm actually going to do training in psychedelic medicine next year. Hmm. I actually just started experimenting with a couple things um, in the last six months. And what I find is that If I take an edible, I can actually get much more connected with the sensations in my body. So when I am... Try going swimming when you do that. Ooh. I have. No, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone into a sauna. I've had a lot of different sensory experiences, and it's amazing. i got to make a list. Yeah. And so to simply recognize that these sensations are always here, but that this substance allows me to actually access them. I'm now also doing breath work and you mm-hmm. can also achieve these kinds of states there. So what psychedelics, and I've tried some, I did a therapeutic psilocybin journey as well. 
And what I discover is that, well, it's actually very different. I think that the psilocybin actually allows me to have insights that blow my mind. Like my extroverted intuition is having lots of insights all the time. But with Mm -hmm. the psilocybin, I don't need another person to have them. So it feels like it brings introverted intuition online for me. And I find I got mostly, my experience was mostly sensation until I came out of it. So that's kind of interesting hearing the difference. There is a sensation component for sure. Actually, it it dominates. It dominates. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for me, the sensation is more prominent actually with an edible. But I also think that it depends on the anxiety that exists in your structure in some ways. Like I only will do an edible that has more CBD in it than THC because straight up THC makes me feel anxious. Whereas if there's a, yeah. So this is why I'm so curious. I have a theory that people that are very attached to doing oftentimes don't like marijuana because it takes away the ability to do things like Mm. I, and this is really what's funny too. If I take an edible and something was really pissing me off and I'm like really in a lot of judgment and annoyance, Mm -hmm. you know, say I'm doing an edible with a friend and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to tell them about this later. If the edible is on board, I'm like, why would I even go there? and stir up frustration or judgment or any of that negative energy, that seems like a stupid thing to do. Interesting. Whereas it's always a stupid thing to do. I mean, a lot of this, you know, just gets me in thought loops that aren't helpful. One of Mm. my practices is to note judgments and not necessarily have to say anything about them. Good practice. I have noticed something with edibles that's really interesting. I suspect it's very five-ish. What I noticed is that, and I think this might be a narcissism thing too, like like the primary narcissism that Sterling was talking about. I am mm-hmm. enamored with my thought processes when I'm altered. I am they are, too. They are so utterly interesting and I want to tell everybody about them and they don't always come out coherently, but I am so impressed with my thinking when I'm altered. And occasionally there's a little voice that comes in. You're completely full of yourself, but it's not mean. No, I think that your thoughts are probably completely amazing. I mean, mine are. The interesting thing is that I can have them while my mouth isn't moving. Mm-hmm. Ah, right. Like that's what's that's amazing for, for you. me. That's completely different. And yeah. I want to blab all my note. Yeah. So I actually believe that psychedelics and THC. And I think we need to map all of this out, obviously, but I believe that it allows you to access the cognitive functions that are in the unconscious. So for me, introverted intuition is my fifth function. It's in my unconscious. But when I, you know, take an edible or psilocybin, I can do introverted intuition. Whereas when I'm not in an altered state, I learn things through extroverted intuition. And it would make sense that for you you can do introverted intuition all day long. It's your superpower. But extroverted intuition, when you were saying, oh, I envy that, it's almost as if you access the ability to do that. So that's my theory with some of these things. Yeah, extroverted intuition looks like more fun to me. Like, in, <laughs> in, I mean, in a general sense. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you're playing. Yeah. Someone I know uh, once said that it is the most, it uses the most mental energy of all the functions. And I don't know where that came from, but it, I just found that really interesting too. Brain scans. Yeah. Dario Nardi is doing brain scans on people. Mm. He's an INTJ and he's a five. Mm. And he's doing brain scans on people with these different cognitive functions. So I would look up his work if this is interesting to anyone. And yeah, basically extroverted intuition, when you have somebody in a scanner, it looks like a Christmas tree just lit up. You know, it's like every area of the brain. That scans. Totally. And actually, when I have used psilocybin, sometimes it actually feels like my brain's going to explode. Like there's so there's so much increased activity that I have the thought, I wonder if I'll actually just fry my brain because it already runs at such mm. lit up high amplitudes. And there's just even like more happening, but it's much more visual as opposed to, I think my process is more auditory. Like when I hear something, yeah. I remember it. Whereas when I am using psilocybin or THC and my eyes are closed, things start coming in imagery, which I think mm-hmm. is introverted intuition for me. Colors, okay. too. Okay, curious, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't yeah. find any uh, order or structure to what I saw and experienced mm-hmm. with psilocybin. Um, I once described it, like, the good part anyway, is a full-body orgasm without attraction or arousal. It really does arouse sexual energy. That's what I was going to say about psilocybin is you can feel your sexual energy. But it even without no, any stimulation. For me, it had no like no target or direction or anything, which was exactly that part was different. And it's just like, yeah. okay, well, hop on. We're going for a ride and, and it'll end in a few hours. But um, there was not a lot of cognitive stuff going on. Okay. A- occasional yeah, commentary on images but that's all well i also think it matters so much with dosing like Mm. i've been pretty low dose um just because my self-pres makes me very careful with anything that i'm going to explore this is why i haven't tried more okay is it yeah do you know what dose you have used i've gone up to four grams but um the best experiences were lower dose that one was for some reason more of a frustrating experience i don't think i could quite ease into it Yeah. I think there's so much to learn in this field. And so Mm -hmm. I'm excited to just hear people's experiences because if we are interested in our consciousness, if we Mm -hmm. are interested in the landscape, the inner landscape of the body and these energetic fields, there is stuff happening that you have to be able to tune into finer energetic vibrations in order to appreciate. And I think that there is so much, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, Yeah, there's a lot of neuroticism, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of things that keep me from experiencing what I know my life can be. Ditto. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Well, that feels like a pretty sweet place to kind of wrap because yeah. I think we, did we make our way to joy and delight? That that actually sounded hopeful at the end. Um, <laughs> that there's like this stuff we're accessing, it, and not, I, I, I'm, I am joking. It showed up here and there. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was really sweet. It was really fun. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I thought you would challenge me more. That's interesting. Oh 
Well, you know what? I'm just going to name that I do find you very, like this term, interesting, but I want to use it in a very good way in that you, I just have to like puzzle on you a little bit. And I'm hoping that we can still engage in conversations. And maybe as I just get curious about some stuff, we'll do this again and bring it on board. But I, this is what my vibe is telling me, like my gut. Sometimes I interview people and I can immediately sense a zone of confusion. Mm -hmm. And so I will push and I will go in on there because I love clarity and I love accuracy. So energetically, I'm getting a very strong, stable, knowing stance. Like I don't have the desire to push on you because I'm not fielding anything that feels like there's confusion around it to me. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Like you just seem to have a lot of clarity. And when you say something, it makes sense to me. This is a perfect example of if it lands and if it's resonating and if it's not making me want to go in a different direction, I'm happy to say, yeah, I agree with you. I think that what you just said is true. Nice. (laughs) That's supposed to be one of our superpowers. There's a book that came out like over 20 years ago. It was on the inferior functions. Uh Uh-huh kind of gave these real brief summaries of all the dominants and compared them to the inferiors and intellectual clarity was part of intuition, intuitive intuition. And I hung on to that one because I like it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. I think that I don't push on fives that much because when you guys are talking about something, it really has come from a studied place frequently. Now I have met fives that I think are in a little bit of a paranoid delusion or like their thinking has taken a turn on them and they're not aware that they've gotten, you know, caught in something. You've probably seen that before too. Like the Unabomber. Yeah, exactly. Was he a five? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So I do think that it's very important. I think this is why community is so important because mm-hmm. if people there's that joke that like, if one person tells you you're crazy, like blow it off. Like a second person tells you they're crazy. Like, Hmm, I don't know. Like if multiple people start telling you you're crazy, like, I don't know, maybe you're having brilliant insights, but you should probably be a little bit careful with where your thoughts are taking you. And this is where I love to say, do these thoughts, are they going to engender violence? I think that's an important question. Violence to myself or others. Hmm. Yeah. I I also have another image that comes with thoughts and ideas. Mm -hmm. It came from working with someone who is a little bit psychotic. So, Mm -hmm. and just the idea that, you know, thoughts need to be grounded to something. So I had this image of thoughts in the air and they had strings and the better thoughts had strings that were attached to the ground or someone was holding onto them. Mm. And then there's all this ungrounded stuff that's just, you know, flaky and overly speculative. Yeah. I also, um, I enjoy following Rob Bell and he wrote a book called Love Wins that got him in a mm-hmm. lot of trouble with the evangelical church. But I mean that, I haven't read the book. Mm-hmm. I know the premise of it, but like that title, like Love Wins. So if I can look at my thought and if my thought is linked to like greed, hatred, or, you know, delusion. You're using both terms to talk about a Christian book. Oh, of course. I mix all of them. They're all great words. Yeah. You know, if I am recognizing that they're linked to one of those hindrances, then I'm, I I know that I'm not at truth yet. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm going to be very skeptical of the truth of the meaning that I'm making. If I can tell 
that it's linked to greed, hatred, or delusion. Yeah, I do like to own those emotions when I have them because they seem to not get in the way as much when I just say, yeah, there it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is about the ego, right? Like Mm -hmm. Russ says all the time, we're not going to get rid of our ego. Like that's not the point. It's to be conscious and present with the ego. And then the ego is going to do what it's going to do. Like fives are giving a gift to the world. Threes are giving a gift to the world. It's like we're specialized to do something. This is actually why I'm doing a social media campaign. I've been talking about how this there's a lot of ick factor associated with it um, because I think there are a lot of people spewing wisdom that doesn't really resonate with my definition of wisdom. And I'm just so afraid that I'm going to be like, I, I would really love to balance out what's on social media on the side of supportive and helpful and nourishing. And I just really want to be conscious of my own delusions as I start putting things out there and just not be too attached to, I guess, just open to feedback, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm really actually doing a lot of exercises with introverted thinking, Mm -hmm. because I don't want extroverted feeling, which is harmony, which is just like group think, like, you know, jerking me around. But I really want to Is extroverted feeling group think or lean that way? I think so, because extroverted feeling or harmony, as it sometimes is called, is about, I want us to have a good vibe. So I might flex what I'm thinking or what I'm saying away from what I, what, what is actually authentic or true in order to create the warmth there. Hmm. Maybe I am more of an INTJ because I mostly think of harmony as a tool. Uh Uh-huh. To get, you know, to do what we need to do. If we're not, if we're tearing at each other's throats, we're probably not going to do what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that would be your extroverted thinking, which is your parent function. We've got to do what we need to do. People let's stop tearing at each other's throats. Whereas people that are leading with extroverted feeling, which an INFJ is, yeah. they want to vibe just because vibing feels good. And it's different than it does. The sexual instinct. I think yeah, it does. It but I think it's different than the vibing that you get with social or sexual instinctual energy. There's a nuance there that mm-hmm. I would probably have to work on describing. But extroverted feeling is just like, you know, it's kind of like the the cheerleader, the hostess, the like, I want everybody here having a good time, feeling warm, feeling good. We're all connected. We're in it together. Kumbaya. You know, it's that's mm. like extroverted. Right. So eighth function, like INTJs don't really get that. Like I have some wonderful friends who are INTJs and they really don't understand why people do social niceties. Like it can sometimes come off as they're a little bit spectrumy. But what it is, is that they just have an extroverted feeling eighth function. They're just a lot more streamlined. Like that introverted Mm -hmm. intuition is just going to pop out the pearl. The extroverted thinking is going to be like, you know, I like to remind myself of this mnemonic, wait, why am I talking? Whereas Mm -hmm. an INTJ doesn't need to worry about that mnemonic. They might need to offer up a little more. Maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) I have to to process that one. Yeah, yeah. And so that extroverted feeling when it's in eighth function, remember, it's the demon or the daemon. 
the demon is the one that can be evilly undermining. And that may be why in some of your social groups, you feel like it hasn't gone well because you weren't playing by the same social rules that other people in the group were playing by. And then your feelings were hurt because you're like, what the hell? Like, I'm a good person. Why aren't you seeing that? And they may have had extroverted feeling higher up and you just weren't playing the same game. It's like you have a different rule book. I may be more aware of uh, participation and contribution. Mm-hmm. One, one of Russ's social zones. Absolutely. And so when, though, as a therapist, you basically trained heavily in extroverted feeling, you obviously can create that container for people to actually share things with you and have a sense of safety and be able to do healing and growth. So that's the daemon. That's the, the gift, the beautiful mm-hmm. thing that happens when we bring the eighth function online. I don't know the shadow functions well yet. That's uh, for another day for me. It's fun. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Trevor. I really enjoyed this. I hope that we get to do this again sometime. My pleasure. And I would probably be open to it. Thank it was you. fun for me. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.